should be... Good Lord, what is happening in there? Aurora Borealis? Uh, Aurora Borealis! At this time of year, at this time of day, in this part of the country, localized entirely within your kitchen. Yes. May I see it? Yes. Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we got a special treat. We got Ryan Mullins, his podcast pulled up, and he recently posted this to the God is Open Facebook page to talk about his ideas about how God's passability works with his ideas of omniscience. And we, we don't get a good understanding of what he means by omniscience in this particular podcast, but when questioning him, I did ascertain that he believes that God's knowledge is unfalsifiable. So that, that's the type of omniscience we're talking about. So we're going to go ahead and listen to his arguments. He plays some music first. I think it was sometime last year. Yeah, um, so this, this guy, Ryan Mullins, he definitely has a voice for podcasting. I'm very jealous of him. He also has a pretty decent haircut, too. Also jealous of that, so uh, it seems like all-around decent guy from what I could tell, so that's good. Here, Tyler asked me to look over this paper and give him some feedback, and I was really excited because it was the exact issue that I wanted to address in future work. I do think that there is a problem here that needs to be figured out, and it was really great to see some of my friends put some serious thought into how the problem should be formulated, because that is exactly what I needed. I needed a clear statement of exactly what the problem is supposed to be. As I'll explain in a little bit, various open theists have pushed similar worries against the combination of passability and foreknowledge, but I can't always figure out exactly. He does this like uh, Dan Carlin thing throughout his podcast where he kind of goes on side tangents and trying to uh, gather, I guess, engagement, try to build pictures in the audience's mind. And it's not a bad thing to do, but it's, it's just a little, little thing that some podcasters do. Exactly what the problem is supposed to be. So Mike and Tyler have done all of us a really great service by attempting to clarify what the problem is supposed to be. Well, all right. With that said, I think it is best to just define some terms. So let's start with neoclassical theism. As I've said on many occasions, the concept of God is that of a perfect being, which is the single ultimate foundation of reality. A model of God will offer a unique set of claims about which attributes explain why God is perfect, and then what it means for God to be the foundation of reality. So uh, he's interested in perfect being theology. And so th th these are his priorities, his goals. What makes God the perfect being? Things that make him a lesser God would be discarded, and things that would make him a better God would be affirmed. And so we, we don't fundamentally, myself and him, share philosophical uh, priors. I, I, would, I would deny all of that as... Probably nonsense. A lot of it's subjective, and it's it's a very arbitrary way of looking at the world. But if that's that's your thing, go for it. And most models of God believe that God is a necessarily existent being with attributes like austerity and self-sufficiency, eternality, maximal power, maximal knowledge. Max so just ask yourself, as he's going through all these these uh, attributes, how many of these are described in the Bible? It's It's very interesting that we got this 
very deep and long historical religious text uh, that spans thousands of years of writing, all these different authors, and these concepts aren't quite found within that text. And so you, you kind of see the divergent worldviews, the Greek philosophical worldview and the Semite, the Jewish priorities when we're talking about God. Like, like Paul says that uh, the Greeks, they, they, they care about philosophy and uh, the Jews, to Jews, a Christ is a stumbling block. What, what, what's the quote offhand? Maximal goodness, perfect rationality, and perfect freedom. Those are not controversial claims. So classical theism says that there are four additional attributes that explain why God is perfect. And those are timelessness, immutability, simplicity, and impassibility, just like I've talked about on the show many times before. So classical theists also think that the modal scope of God's knowledge extends to the future. And there are different accounts of how God gets the knowledge of the future. So for example, a classical theist might be a theological determinist, you know, something like Thomism or Calvinism. And then a classical theist might be a Molinist, they might be a Scotist, an Arminian, you know, they've, they've got some options here. And finally, when it comes to God being the foundation, classical theism says that God freely creates the universe out of nothing. So the neoclassical theist says that God freely creates the universe out of nothing, so she agrees with that. And then she also agrees that the modal scope of God's knowledge... I think it's funny, he's using the feminine pronouns. Um, if you go into any theologically dominated spaces... It's mostly all men. Like, I, I ran the stats after I listened to this, and he's using the female pronouns. I went to God is Open, and I pulled up the stats there. 80% men. Uh, yeah, theological spaces are overwhelmingly men. And so you probably don't have to go out of your way to use feminine pronouns unless you're trying to virtue signal. Knowledge extends to the future. And the neoclassical theists, just like the classical theists, they've got different accounts of how God gets that knowledge of the future. They could be a Calvinist, they could be a Molinist, they could be, you know, all sorts of things. So what makes neoclassical theism unique is that it says that one or more of those four classical attributes needs to be rejected. So some people like Linda Zygzebski, they'll reject impassibility, but retain the rest of the classical attributes. Then other people like John Peckham, they're going to reject all four of those classical attributes. And so the neoclassical theist has options because of the, well, unfortunately fuzzy nature of this model of God. Now, the open theist agrees that God freely creates the universe out of nothing. They want to affirm creation ex nihilo. But the open theist denies that the modal scope of God's knowledge... Unless, unless you're Thomas Ord. I had Thomas Ord on the program to talk about his ideas of creation. And so just, uh, I don't know, type in uh, God is open, Thomas Ord. You'll, you'll probably find it. So it, it's, not, it's not mandatory to believe in creation ex nihilo if you are an open theist. But he's probably generally correct. Knowledge extends to the future. God does not know exactly how the future will unfold because what will happen in the future is not entirely settled. And then the majority of open theists, they reject all four of the classical attributes. So the emphasis for today is on neoclassical theism. So say you're like me or John Peckham, John Feinberg or William Lane Craig, you know, you're something like that. You want to reject all four of the classical attributes. You think that God must be passable, but you also want to affirm that God knows the future. Is that a problem? Maybe. Let me define a few more terms, and then we can get into what the problem is supposed to be. So to say that God is passable is to say that God can be moved or influenced by things that are external to himself for his thoughts, emotions, and actions. 
And then further, God can have any emotion that is consistent with his perfect rationality and his perfect moral goodness. An emotion is just a felt evaluation of a situation. Just just notice, notice the way he talks about God. God is like a formula. And so God is an uh, impersonal being that is forced to fit certain patterns and certain formulas. You just add the inputs and outputs God. And so this, this is a formalistic way of, of thinking about God. Again, I would contrast this with the Semitic way of thinking about God, that God is a person. And God has desires, God has uh, motivations, God has priorities, God, God faces trade-offs in the world, God, God tries various things to, in order to get things done, and it's, it's, a, it's, not, it's not a cut and dry formula. And so uh, it, it's just a different way, I guess, of looking at God and the world. But what he's going to try to do here is the purpose of this is to say that God has, he, he doesn't actually go through and define within this podcast what he means by omniscience. And uh, what he actually thinks of omniscience is that God has some sort of unfalsifiable knowledge. And so, and this, this knowledge is going to probably resemble the classical notion of omniscience in which it's, it's not uh, things that could re- fade into memory and then be recalled. It's, it's all knowledge all present. There's no discursive thinking within God, uh, all at the forefront of God's mind at all eternity. Keep that in mind because that's going to be critical here. I think he pulls a bait and switch like we see with Molnist quite often where where it's they, they use analogies that fit people, but their analogies fall apart because they believe God's knowledge, which they're analogizing, is inherently different in critical ways than human knowledge. So I, I, w- I would definitely agree that impassibility or passibility that God can be affected is compatible with future foreknowledge if you're just using all normal dictionary definitions with loose meanings that's verified after the fact, the normal way we talk about knowledge. I know I'm going to work tomorrow, right? That type of knowledge. That type of knowledge is falsifiable. It could turn out to be false, even though I knew it previously. And if if it does occur, people wouldn't say, oh, you didn't know that, anything like that. That's just not how we talk. But using the philosophical definitions, uh, compare that to how we, we talk in everyday life. Yes, I believe that God could have foreknowledge of future events. I don't think that when the Bible uses the word aprokinosko, foreknowledge, that's talking anything like what we in the American world, when we use the word foreknowledge, it's talking about entirely different concepts. But yes, within the Bible, God does know things that will happen in the future. But sometimes the things that he knows will happen just don't happen. They, they don't occur. And sometimes God has regrets for his own actions. But we'll go ahead and uh, hit play here. A passable God's emotions will perfectly track the values in the world and be appropriately fitting to each situation. So what about empathy? People who affirm passability, they seem to be divided over the extent to which God can be empathetic. So Zygzebski says that God is omnisubjective, which is the capacity to perfectly grasp the first-person perspective of every conscious being. She says that this means that God must have total, perfect empathy with all creaturely conscious states. So just think about what that idea means. God knows what it's like to be Jeffrey Dahmer and lush lust lust after eating the flesh 
of young male victims that he has just ripped apart and uh, thrown pieces in his fridge. God has empathy or sympathy. God God knows what it is to be Jeffrey Dahmer in that situation. Ah, it's it is a claim. I, I do got I do got to admit that it is definitely a claim. Now, some people who affirm passibility, they're unwilling to go that far because they think that there are certain logical, metaphysical, and maybe even some moral constraints on how much empathy God can have. For this episode, I want to just keep it really simple, and I'm just going to stick with omnisubjectivity. So if you want to affirm omnisubjectivity, you are relying on a well-known distinction between propositional knowledge and phenomenal knowledge. Propositional knowledge is... So just just keep tracking the argument. Remember, he talked about perfect being theology. And so he's saying, I have a formula here. And he's, he's not saying that it's his personal formula. But he says, since we all value God being a perfect being, uh, someone proposed this formula here in which God has omni-subjectivity, that God knows what it's like to be all people at all times. And so now we need to argue and think it out to see whether this dignum dio, whether this is fitting of God, and if it is, if it makes him better than it wouldn't, if it makes him better than otherwise, we're going to affirm this formula on to God. So th- this, is, this, is, this is how modern theological philosophy debates work. Um, you set your value structure, and then you argue the metaphysical details, the formulas. Again, I don't think God is a formula. I don't think God follows formulas. I think he's a person with independent thoughts and interactions, and it, he, d- he doesn't have to follow formulaic structures. But I, th- I think that's actually the picture that the Bible, the Bible doesn't talk anything like this. Like, God knows what's like to be um, like Abimelech. Uh, mm, I don't know about that. God knows what's be, <laughs> what it's like to be King Ahab. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know. Um, mm, probably not. I, I wouldn't say that the biblical authors had that in mind. Is sometimes referred to as knowledge that. Simply knowing that something is the case. For example, I know that the rain in Spain falls mostly on the plain. That's a reference to My Fair Lady, which uh, I love the reference because the movie's fantastic. I need to force my kids to watch it. That is a different kind of knowledge from phenomenal knowledge or experiential knowledge. This is usually referred to as knowledge of what it is like. There's something that it is like to experience the rain in Spain. And that experiential knowledge is not the same as merely knowing that the rain in Spain falls mostly on the plain. There's a difference between knowing that it is raining and knowing what it is like to experience the rain fall on you. Now, pretty much all of the definitions of omniscience focus solely on propositional knowledge. It's a- yeah, I, I, I took a William Lane Craig clip, and in one of the two-minute open theism videos, I played that clip in which William Lane Craig is explaining that God doesn't have experiential knowledge. God, God doesn't have experiences, which adds to some sort of experiential knowledge. That's not what omniscience is talking about in his views. Um, and I, I'm not sure how he factors Jesus into that equation, but that that is the classical view, that God cannot gain knowledge. And so experiential knowledge, knowledge in which you now know what it feels like to encounter cert, certain situations, that's typically, in the classical definition, not part of 
God's knowledge set, and he's not going to gain that and add that to him because that would be changed. That would violate simplicity. That would violate uh, his dependencies on the world, his self-sufficiency, those sorts of things. And so typically classical theism is going to deny that. But of course, he's talking about neoclassical theism, which is using modified lists of attributes and, and different formulas, it, it appears. It's a very standard claim to say that God is omniscient and that God knows of the truth values of all propositions. But what Zagzebski is claiming is that there is more to know about the world than mere propositions. That's true, yes. There's all this phenomenal and experiential knowledge to be had as well. Hence why she thinks that omnisubjectivity gives us a better way of filling out the concept of omniscience than just merely propositional knowledge. Okay, so far so good. Next we need to talk about foreknowledge. Since I'm trying to defend a neoclassical model of God in this episode, I will stick with some really generic claims made by Calvinists and Molinists. For those of you listening who are Calvinists and Molinists, you can insert your favorite logical moments into the life of God as you see fit. But here's the big idea. Creation ex nihilo says that once God was all alone. Prior to God's creative act, there was God and nothing else. So in this pre-creation moment, God knows all of the possible universes and timelines that he could possibly bring about. All of these possibilities, they're just, well, they're just ideas in the mind of God. Nothing more, nothing less. And then God selects a particular universe with a particular timeline. And on the basis of that decision, God knows exactly how the future will unfold. I, I think that's a misinterpretation of Molinism because Molinism doesn't have God with dependent knowledge. His knowledge isn't dependent on his decisions because that's a generated knowledge. That's a knowledge uh, from outside himself. That's a knowledge that's not completely with him. So they, they do put up logical priorities, but um, the ones who are pretty deep into Molinism, I think they'd be very hard pressed to say that God's knowledge is dependent on his decision to create, that his knowledge could have been otherwise. There's potentiality in his knowledge right it's uh it's it's like it the knowledge is unfalsifiable as as mullins agreed on the god is open page they believe the knowledge is unfalsifiable so god's foreknowledge is god's knowledge of exactly what will take place now notice that i said what will take place this is affirming that god's foreknowledge is propositional in fact, it is affirming that God's foreknowledge is of tensed propositions. Tense propositions are temporal propositions about what was the case, what is the case right now, and then what will be the case in the future. And so my claim is that God's foreknowledge is just merely propositional. And this is a fairly common claim, though I'll soon discuss some people who want to push back on this point. All right, so we've got enough definitions. What is this problem? Where did he find these people that push back? Uh, he's, he's rolling in, in interesting circles of people. For affirming passability and foreknowledge. So the open theist William Hasker, he, he kind of puts the problem a bit like this. He could say, you know, look, Ryan, I see that you affirm that God is passable. You know, good. You've been reading your Bible. But you cannot say that God is passable and that God knows the future. Only open theism allows you to affirm that God is passable. So Hasker could say something like that to me. To which I would respond to Hasker. Yeah, absolutely. Um, does God change, <laughs> right? Uh, is God simple? Uh, if, if God is immutable, if God is simple, if God is timeless, then passability doesn't make sense. We're not talking about God being moved 
from creation, you're denying basically every single classical attribute, simplicity, self-sufficiency, timelessness, immutability, God being moved from outside himself. God is dependent on the world. And um, I, it's, it's hard to imagine people, I don't know if Ryan Mullins is actually making that point. Maybe he is. Or why should it think a thing like that? Well, Hasker can say the following. And in fact, here's what he does say. He says that there are two characteristics to the biblical description of God's emotional life. And these are the two descriptions that he says. So this is the two claims that Hasker makes. He says, number one, the emotion ascribed to God is concerned with and appropriate to the particular situation of the human beings to whom God is related. And then number two. Uh, Hasker is definitely right. So this is what's really funny about uh, these priorities and these values. It's like, God is the greatest being imaginable. Uh, he's he's dignum dio. Whatever's fitting God is true. And so we need to think of these formulas. And uh, then we will just grab some verses out of the Bible and say, hey, this Bible verse fits my formula. So my formula is act- like none of the Bible authors were talking in these categories. They didn't think like this. They didn't argue like this. It's it's. It is a little funny to me that these people are pulling Bible verses for support of this these metaphysics. It's like, how about those Bible verses where, I don't know, God's regretting his own actions? D- do they factor in? The emotion would be profoundly different if we assumed it to be informed by a definite prior knowledge of the situation's outcome. Okay? So what Hasker has in mind... So that actually is one of the arguments, is that um, God could have uh, actual regret when he sees, even though he has complete foreknowledge, he could have actual regret when he sees events play out. So let's say I put on a movie, and it's a sad movie, and I've seen the movie movie before, and I know it's going to be a sad movie. And I, I play it through, and I watch it, and then at the end, uh, maybe I'm really sad. It's, it's Air Bud. I don't, I don't know anything about Air Bud, but let's pr- pretend in, in the end, um, they old yeller Air Bud. And it's the saddest scene that I knew is coming. Might be very sad with the old yeller Airbud, and I might feel emotions during that scene that I knew was coming. So, therefore, emotion can be compatible with foreknowledge because there is a present experience which hits you differently. The, the problem is, and I pointed out in in the, the Facebook thread, is that God's type of knowledge. Just remember what omniscience actually means. A typical omniscience is ungenerated, it's eternal, it's non-falsifiable, it's, uh, it, it, it's not dependent on the world outside of itself. And it's in God's mind, it's not discursive, it's in the forefront of his mind at all moments. And so how is God, with that type of propositional knowledge, in which doesn't change, doesn't, uh, isn't mediated, doesn't, how, how is that used? How is he not experiencing all those things all at once for all eternity in that model in which he has that type of propositional knowledge? It's not like us. It's not like me putting a movie in the back of my head and having that movie play out. And now it's more real and now it's more immediate. And I'm, I'm as a third party, absorbing this information to myself, processing this information, thinking about this information and reliving these old experiences, right? Um, this this type of knowledge yeah, that we have, that that's how we we could feel sadness 
four movies in which we know the ending of the movie when they old yeller Airbud. Um, but it he seems to he, he likes to give some definitions of some things, but he doesn't go into very much detail of what he's trying to make passability compatible with. He wants to find passability and then talk it out. But what's at stake here, what's critical, the, the actual open theist objection is, how do you define omniscience? How does omniscience function? How does that work? And, and what, what type of model are you actually claiming is, is playing out here? When God is feeling this emotion, is God passable? Can God change? Can God receive from outside himself? How does that work with eternal propositional knowledge of all things? Does this propositional knowledge change? Here is something like this. He could say, you know, Ryan, if you really want to affirm all of the emotions that the Bible says God has, you cannot do that if God knows the future. You cannot do that because God's exhaustive foreknowledge will temper God's emotions in such a way that they no longer look like what the Bible describes. I, well, I think this is an interesting complaint, but I am currently feeling unpersuaded. Here's why. According to the philosopher Ollie Pearson, my emotions are always responding to the present tensed facts. My emotions are justified by the present tensed facts. And some of the present tense facts are about what will take place in the future. Merely knowing what will happen in the future will certainly temper my present emotions, but it in no way undermines the fact that I have emotions. Nor does it undermine the fact that I am a passable being. Basically, all this is doing is... Yeah, so if, if I see a sad movie the first time, I'm probably going to be more sad than when I see it the second time, because... Now I have expectations, and uh, now I know what's going to happen, and, and, and my brain has already processed that sadness, and so it's probably not going to process it at that same level a second time. And his argument is, it could be like that for God as well. The problem is that qualitatively, God's propositional knowledge is qualitatively different than ours, in his model, of course, in his model, where God doesn't process things, doesn't call things to mind, doesn't have recesses of memory that he calls upon, doesn't uh, have re-experiences. I'm not ex exactly sure if they're arguing for God being outside of time, um, but uh, if that's the case, then, then all of this doesn't make any sense. It's pointing out you know, very common emotional experiences that all of us have. So consider the classical example from A. and Pryor's Thank Goodness That Is Over argument for the tense theory of time. So Pryor says that he is anxious about an upcoming exam. He knows that the exam will take place on Monday. And he knows that after the exam is over, he will feel, you know, some kind of great sense of relief. But knowing that he will eventually feel relief does not get rid of Pryor's present anxiety. Why? Well, because it would be irrational to feel relief when the exam has not yet taken place. The present facts are that the exam is upcoming, and that justifies Pryor's emotion of anxiety. I mean, you could probably say that Pryor's anxiety is tempered by this knowledge, that the exam will eventually finish, but that does not undermine his, his entirely justified anxiety. Well, consider a different case. There's this guy named Jesus Christ. He predicted that he would suffer and die on a cross and be raised three days later. The night before he was crucified, he prayed that the Father might spare him of his forthcoming crucifixion. Jesus has already stated that he will, in fact, be resurrected in three days. But for some reason, this knowledge about what will happen in the future 
it doesn't seem to get rid of his anxiety about his upcoming crucifixion. Why? Well, because Jesus' anxiety is an appropriate response to the present facts. Yeah, the, the interesting thing is that uh, Jesus didn't think it was a foregone conclusion. And so he hedges his prayer saying that God should disregard Jesus's will if God has a different higher priority will. It's because Jesus was thought maybe God might respond to my prayer and destroy God's own plan for my sake. And so he's, he's not seeing the future as meticulously set. Also, Jesus was a person uh, that he learned things. He grew in wisdom and knowledge. He didn't know when, when the coming was from uh, Mark, Mark 13, 32, the end times, that day and hour, no man knows, uh, not the angels in heaven, not Jesus, only God knows that. Uh, so he didn't know everything. So he's analogous to us as people. And so maybe the analogy is falling apart. So I do wonder how this, how this present knowledge, how it flows to the Godhead in this model. How does God know when it's now? Does he have senses that he's, he's picking up data from outside himself, telling him what the present is and to, to, to trigger these experiences, to, to trigger this experiential, experiential type of knowledge? Is, is that the idea that uh, how, how does that work exactly? I, I'm, I'd like to know some of some of the thought process behind this. Because the present facts are that he will be undergoing an immense amount of suffering very soon. It would be irrational for Jesus to have an emotional response like, whew, thank goodness that's over when the crucifixion hasn't even happened yet. To be sure, I guess you could say that Jesus's knowledge of his forthcoming resurrection, that it's going to be like, you know, that'll like temper his anxiety in that moment. But Jesus still got so anxious that he sweat blood. If Jesus is justified in having an emotional response like that, whilst knowing something about the future, then I find myself unpersuaded that there's some deep conflict between passability and foreknowledge. Yeah, I, I don't think that even Ryan Mullins thinks that Jesus's knowledge of the crucifixion is analogous is to his idea of omniscience. And so uh, maybe I could be wrong there, but typically theists who talk about Jesus's his level of omniscience claim that it was a stowed away attribute that Jesus didn't actually have access to. And so his knowledge... In, in typical classical theism, in typical classical theists, they'll, they'll claim this about his knowledge, is that it actually didn't resemble God the Father's omniscience at the time. It's kind of like this latent, unaccessed attribute. And so the analogy does fall apart because I don't believe that he actually believes what he's saying. Again, what all of these examples show is that we all have the very common experience of having our present emotions tempered by what will take place in the future. And of course, Hasker might be willing to concede this. But he may say that there are other emotions predicated of God in the Bible that are inconsistent with God's foreknowledge. So open theists, they love to point to the emotion of surprise. God is said to be surprised by some things in certain translations of the Bible. So, for example, God is said to be surprised by Israel sacrificing their children to idols right after God told them not to do that. Okay, well, I guess I have two thoughts in response to this. My first response comes from the neoclassical theist Bruce Ware. 
So Bruce Ware, he's a Calvinist, but he also affirms passibility. So he goes through all of the different verses where God is said to be surprised by the sins of Israel. Uh, Bruce Ware makes a lot of Calvinists real mad. It'll be like, oh, Bruce Ware is not a real Calvinist of things like that. They'll, they'll deal with that with Norm, Norman Geisler, especially. You'll quote Norman Geisler. It's like, hey, here's this Calvinist saying this. Oh, he's not a Calvinist. You're like, ah, I, I guess. I don't know. And then uh, uh, James Dwezel, he's calling out Ware because in Ware's anti-open theism book, he's talking about God's passability. And Dwezel says, this violates all our attributes. This violates uh, simplicity. This violates the idea that all that is in God is God. The idea that he's he's one simple substance, all that's being violated. And so pretty fantastic. And Weir argues that surprise, he says that's not really the best way to translate this particular emotion. Instead, it would be better to translate this as some kind of like shock or disappointment. And I think the idea is something like this. So you can tell your kids not to do something bad, knowing full well that they will not listen to you because they're little brats. And then when you catch them doing that bad thing, you may very well say, Ooh, I'm surprised by this. But that's just a bit theatrical to make a point to your children. What you really mean is that you are shocked. You're disappointed. You're upset. You know, you're, you're pissed off. You told them not to do it. And you knew these little brats were going to do it anyway. And yet here we are. They did the bad thing. And you are super pissed off. Did knowing that your kids would disobey temper your disappointment? Probably. So, so he, he's not wrong in what he's saying. And that's why um, it's really critical to point to verses in the Bible where God's having monologues to himself for one thing. It's, so it's, it's not like he's speaking idiomatically to an audience. Like Genesis 6, God, God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and God regretted he had made man. And God said to, my, said to himself, he said, uh, I'm sorry I've made man. Um, and so the regret there is not directed at the event. It's not like, oh, I'm sorry things have turned out this way, like you might do with your kids. I'm surprised you guys are acting this way in his example. Um, but but the regret is focused at God's own actions. God is regretting his own, his own actions gave him regret. If he were to do things all over again, he wouldn't have done them. And so that's why those two passages within 1 Samuel 15 and Genesis 6, 6, 6 are incredibly powerful because they also fit the context. You look at what's going on in context and it fits the context. It makes sense in context. It ascribes character motivations to rising and falling actions. It, it uh, explains the plot twists within those narratives. Uh, it just fits as a whole with what's going on in the story. So it, it's, it's a lot harder to say to try to do the hand waving where it's like, well, it could be this other thing where he's, he's using a little bit of rhetoric, right? Um, yeah. It's a lot harder to do that with those types of verses, but it does not undermine you being justified in being pissed off or disappointed. So if where is correct, then the passages in scripture about God being surprised, well, they're not really about God being surprised, but I don't know. You need to ask an old Testament scholar about these specific verses. Here is my second thought. Even on open theism, I honestly don't think God is going to be that surprised. On open theism, God knows all of the possible futures, and he knows the objective probability of each possible future coming about. As certain future events draw closer, my guess is that the probability of what will happen quickly reaches certainty. 
This is so because humans are not that wildly unpredictable. Yeah, so notice the formulaic approach to God. So this, this is how God's knowledge operates. Um, he has this set of propositions with various probability formulas. And as they're playing out, the formulas are going up. And like God is like this giant calculator in the sky, not even in the sky, uh, abstract calculator that's calculating all possibilities and probabilities. In the Bible, you know, God's trying things. He says, what more could I have done, uh, Israel, to get through to you? I've done everything. And now I'm just going to destroy you all because, you know, I throw my hands in the air and give up. Um, it's just not working. You know, so it's it doesn't seem like uh, yeah, there's no like passage where he's like, I ran the probabilities on various uh, potential vectors of human history. And uh, we, we tried to follow the best matching path of of possible outcomes and it didn't quite materialize the way that the probability functions were pointing to yeah, there's a low probability over there there's not not a passage like that there's not a passage like that this this talk is actually pretty funny to me and we're even developing ai that can make scarily accurate predictions so if humans can create ai that makes those kind of highly accurate predictions then surely god's predictive power is going to be even greater as various events quickly approach, the objective probability about which set of actions humans will perform, well, it starts to become more and more obvious. I mean, at some point, I would... Connor writes that uh, his increasing probability statement sounds pretty plausible. Yeah, as events get closer to when that event's to take place, yes, in every single person's mind, um, the probability that that person can assign accurately to that event is probably going to be higher. The closer to the election, you're probably going to have a higher percentage of knowledge of who's going to get elected versus years out. And so generally, that's true for any creature. As events draw near, you know more accurately how those events are going to occur and if they occur. We think it's plausible that God would know for certain which action you will perform. I mean, at the very least, God will know that it is 99% likely that you will perform a particular action. That does not sound like a great surprise for God. I just imagine God saying, Ah, yes, Johnny, I see what you did there. You really had me on the edge of my seat for a bit. For a while, there was only this 56% chance that you would make that move. But eventually, I only knew that there was a 99% chance that you would do that. Whew, look at how surprised I am that you did, in fact, do that thing that was so overwhelmingly likely to happen. When I put it like that, especially with the sarcasm, I mean, it, it doesn't sound like much of a surprise. So if God being surprised on Calvinism and Molinism, if that's a problem, I think it should also be a problem on open theism. Sure, on Calvinism and Molinism, God knows with 100% certainty what you will do. And on open theism, there might be cases where the certainty is lower. But how low could it really be without undermining God's providential control? So, so here's, here's the argument. Let's visualize this, that God has all propositional future statements in his mind at once. So just kind of imagine like a stock market and you're, you have all the, all the stock listings and in real time you see them uh, increase or decrease, uh, uh, changing different levels of value. Uh, that's it's like that for God, but for all propositions, and they have a percent actualization, percent chance actual actualization um, bar that 
gets closer and closer to 100%, the, the closer that it, it uh, comes to happening, and then it fades towards the 0% as it becomes less likely. And so he's saying that God really shouldn't be surprised because he should be monitoring all those probability bars in real time to see which ones are headed towards the 100% actualization phase and which ones are pulling off and going towards zero. And so he should be having this meticulous, this meticulous uh, providential understanding of all things which are coming and about to come in such a way that he's not taken off guard. And so, you know, um, if, if God is watching the world, if God's knowledge is mediated, this would actually destroy his argument because um, he's, he's, he's saying he wants a model of open theism, which ascribes a model of omniscience in which God has access to all true propositional uh, facts without any mediation. So it's not like God watches to see. It's not like information is coming from outside of God. It's that God God just intuitively knows all these propositional facts and even the, the percentages in the future. And so that that's the basis of this claim. But the Bible doesn't seem to work like that. A lot of times things are coming to God, reports are coming to God, angels are reporting to God. It, it tends to be mediated knowledge. God watches the world. And if you're just watching the world, yeah, you could probably be surprised by things that are coming on if you're if you have a mediated knowledge. Especially as the timeline progresses, the certainty just gets higher and higher. And that does not sound like a recipe for God being surprised. So I don't find this particular argument from Haskell. It would be depending on how wildly the probability swings happen as well. And so if there's something that's edging, let, let's say let's say um Let's say predict it has Trump winning the 2020 election, has it at 90%, and then all of a sudden at like 3 in the morning, it swings all the way down to like 30%, and then it's uh, 0% by the next day. If, if God's probability bar watching one of those facts with that wide of a swing within a short time period, he, he, yeah, he might actually even be surprised in that model, like an actual genuine surprise, uh, based based on the model that even Mullins is saying, open theists hold. And so, yeah, if, if there's a wild swing in probability curves, God could in fact be surprised. It's very persuasive. I don't know what's going on here. Fast forwarding. There's a direct quote. He says, why would God want to go through history with us as it unfolds when he already knows everything he and we will do? For the same reason that the person who meticulously plans every detail of a business meeting or worship service still wants to attend. For the same reason that someone who knows all the lines of every actor in a play still wants to experience the live performance. Knowing intellectually the blueprint for what will happen cannot take the place of experiencing the actual occurring of everything that is planned. As we saw in nuancing the divine attribute of omniscience, there is a difference between propositional knowledge and experiential knowledge. God's knowing propositionally everything that will occur because he has foreordained it, it cannot take the place of experiencing history's flow as it passes. 
knowing that I will seek his help in times of trial and that he will respond cannot take the place of actually hearing my prayer and then responding to my need. No, the doing of history is not boring for the king who has planned each moment. And these are valid arguments. It's like, if, if, even if you know how a movie is going to turn out, you might want the experience of watching the movie. So there's, there's not anything inherently wrong with this answer that he's giving right there. One of it. Okay, so what you see in Feinberg's reply there is that distinction between propositional knowledge and phenomenal or experiential knowledge that I mentioned earlier. So Feinberg is saying that God's foreknowledge is only propositional. But some critics disagree. They just don't think that's quite right. So listen to what the open theist Richard Rice has to say here. So here's what Rice says. Here's a direct quote. He says, The traditional view of divine foreknowledge collapses any distinction between anticipation and realization. According to the classical view, God's knowledge of the future is exhaustive. God knows the entire future, the future in all its detail. If so, then God not only knows exactly what will occur, God also knows every aspect of his own response to what will occur, and to know that, in effect, is to have the experience already. If God foreknows all, then God experiences already includes all. Actual occurrences contribute nothing new. So that's Rice's statement. I, well, I disagree with Rice here. I think this ignores the distinction between propositional and phenomenal knowledge that most people want to make. Yeah, so how does God receive this phenomenal uh, phenomenal knowledge does does he have senses how do, how does this work exactly and so i he seems to be positing that god in his view has two different fact receptors uh the fact receptor for propositional knowledge is is one set and then god somehow receives experiential knowledge with a different uh, set of knowledge something like that and i i guess that model does work out, but I still don't see how if you have all propositional knowledge at the forefront of at your of your mind, non-discursively from all eternity, um, how you could actually go about with an experience, right? And if how are you taking in new facts to cue those emotional cues? What what's changing? Is is he is he claiming that there's no actual relationship between known propositions and uh, how our emotions work, how our how our experiential knowledge works. Is that the claim? I I don't I don't think that's that's a valid claim. I think what we know and how we think and uh, how we we process facts has has a lot to do with our emotional state. And I think the effort of redigesting movies and um, having them come to prominence in our mind again adds to our experience. And that's, that's primarily why we re, we rewatch movies because if that movie was at the forefront of our mind eternally, simplistically and non-discursively from all eternity, we, there'd be no reason to watch the movie. It'd be like you've, you're watching the movie right now as we speak. That's, it's not going to be like a new experience because it's, it's all there. God can only experience what presently exists. Future events do not yet exist for God to experience. Nothing about knowing that I will respond to certain future events will give me knowledge of what it is like to actually respond. I can only have that experiential knowledge by actually experiencing the response when it happens. 
Now, Tyler and Mike, they want to they wanna push back on this claim too. This is what we heard in the previous episode. And what they do is they point out that Linda Zagzebski wants to extend God's omnisubjectivity to counterfactual knowledge of all possible worlds. Basically, it sounds like she wants to extend omnisubjectivity to God's middle knowledge. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm quite favorable towards Molinism, but I don't think the Molinist should extend omnisubjectivity to God's middle knowledge. Before explaining my disagreement, let's see why Zygzebski wants to make this claim. All right, let's uh, go look at what Alan Rhoda. Alan Rhoda actually responded to this podcast, and here's what he wrote. He says, you're right, Ryan. Uh, I don't like your take in the first two segments because the original claim was Alan Rhoda is going to take some issues with it. Alan Rhoda writes, the first segment, it uh, it's, uh, objectionally focuses on foreknowledge in abstraction from providence. If providence is meticulous and God thus specifically ordains whatsoever comes to pass, then there's no reason for God to ever feel disappointed in anything that occurs. Whatever happens, he's getting exactly what he wanted and on Calvinism, what he ultimately caused. That, that's true. If, if we're dealing with the Calvinist viewpoint here, disappointment doesn't make sense. And uh, that's the Geisler model. That's a Bruce Ware model. Now, in the second segment, you propose that the actual experience of things might give God a kind of experiential knowledge that a meticulous providential decree by itself would not. I disagree. I think that this idea objectionally understates how vivid a divine simulation would have to be. On the pain of undermining the intensive perfection of divine omniscience, we have to say that God's meticulously imagining a world would be just as vivid, this is actually a really good point, just as vivid as the actual experience thereof. So his argument is that basically because God has this type of omniscience in which um, all, all facts are known to God at the forefront of his mind, non-discursively, not dependent on anything outside himself, that's this a, a eternally simple knowledge that's indistinguishable from events as those events happen. Therefore, God shouldn't be changing emotional states. And uh, that's basically what I argued, um, just, I guess, in a different way. On the pain of undermining the intensive perfection of divine omniscience, we have to say that God's meticulously imagining of a world would be just as vivid as the actual experience thereof. Given meticulous providence, the only difference would be God's knowledge that he willed this world be actual, a bit of knowledge that derives wholly from God and not at all from creation. Well, it doesn't derive from anywhere. Remember, God's knowledge needs to be ungenerated in classical models of omniscience. It's not being addressed by anyone in the conversation, but that is the classical classical model. I'm going to hit play here real quick, and we'll see what else is, is said. It's wanting me to sign up for something. So Zegzebski says that this extension of omnisubjectivity would help God figure out which universe to create. The suggestion seems to be that God would use his omnisubjectivity to empathize with all possible creatures. This would give God knowledge of exactly what it would be like to create and sustain the universe in existence. And so on the basis of this, God can have a fully informed decision about which universe to create. That's an interesting suggestion, but I demure at this suggestion. I don't think it makes sense. If I empathize with you, 
there is something about you in your particularity that grounds my empathy. I cannot properly empathize with you if you do not yet exist. So consider a couple who is trying to get pregnant. The couple will start imagining what their life will be like with their future kid, but they are not empathizing with their future kid. I mean, there is no kid to empathize with because the couple is not even pregnant yet. Instead, they're just imagining or simulating what it would be like to have a kid. And imagination and simulation, I mean, those are important ways that we... All right, I think we get the idea. Let's, let's uh, finish off Rhoda's, Rhoda's quote and see what else he says. Then we'll probably end there. He says, in short, given meticulous providence, whether of the Molinist or Calvinist variety, all information about creation apart, <clears throat> perhaps from what time is it now, is fully available to God from the moment of the divine decree. And that's interesting. Like uh, William Lane Craig doesn't think that God is timeless. He doesn't also think that God is simple. And so uh, when, when we're dealing with people, it, it's, it would be nice if we had like a list of uh, attributes, negative attributes that they affirm or don't affirm, something like that. So we, we might, we might uh, uh, you might make the mistake of assuming they are affirming an attribute that they don't. But he says, and none of the information owes anything to creation itself. Yes, in all models, God's knowledge is ungenerated and non-dependent on creation. I, th I think that is pretty critical here. And none of the information owes anything to creation itself. I submit that a robustly passable God is only possible if meticulous providence is false. Yeah, I'd say meticulous uh, omniscience, a classical omniscience, is that it is incompatible with passability with God experiencing things and processing those experiences and doing things with those experiences because uh, he basically has this type of knowledge of of facts of figures he has this knowledge of propositions that is identical to uh, this experience that is supposed to trigger these types of emotions it doesn't make sense that he's experiencing things things in real time it's just it's not analog analogous to us at all it's a qualitatively different type of knowledge. All right, we're going to probably end there. Well, probably, we are going to end there. God knows we're going to end there. And so uh, thanks for listening. Uh, leave a comment. Uh, leave a review. If you read my book, leave a review on Amazon. That'd be good. Or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group. Uh, thank you for listening. Bye.